Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 AM. My name is Ruth Hagen-Gruber, coming from Germany, and happy to be here. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali, and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. Love, bittersweet, irrepressible, loosens my limbs, and I tremble. Sappho, 6th century BC. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today we have an interview, part two, with Professor Susan Wolfe about love and morality. And I'm speaking to Professor Susan Wolfe. Thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me. So what are good for nothings? Uh, well, it's a, that's a question <laughs> that's arising from the title of a, a paper I wrote, Good for Nothings. <laughs> I'll tell you what the, the first example of a good for nothing was in that paper. It was a philosophy article. Almost any almost any philosophy article. the 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 thought was look there's a, there are, we write a lot of books and articles we philosophers uh, you could do paintings just as well there are a lot there's lots of great art out there more so let's start with art right there is more great art out there in the world than any individual person could possibly appreciate. If there were one fewer artist or if an artist painted one fewer painting, even a really good painting, no one would be worse off, really, because there would be all those other paintings they could appreciate and study and enjoy. And the, so it was, so you might think, so why do it, right? Uh, you're not actually making the world a better place. You're not adding to the good in the world, even though in another way, I mean, what you're doing is good. It's, this is a good work of philosophy, not a bad work. This is a good painting, not a bad or mediocre painting. Well, so th- to me, it, there's a puzzle there, right? And what I want to say is that it's, it's a mistake to apply the question, how do I, well, I don't know if it's a mistake, but what I wanted to say is, if you apply the question, am I making, am I improving the world by creating this thing? There are lots of things that will, the, to which the answer will be no. It's not good for anything. There are, are, and yet, if you look at the individual creation, it can be a very good thing. <laughs> so, for me, I wanted to suggest: look, there's room in the in our lives for asking how how can I make the world a better place. What can I do that will be good for the world? But there's also room for 
doing things where that isn't a question. The idea of someone saying, I'm not going to write any books because we already have enough. I, I, it would be a shame. I mean, if, if I mean, some of my favorite philosophers, Iris Murdoch or Philippa Foote or P.F. Strassen, if they thought, oh, there's plenty of good stuff out there, I'm not going to write any, that would be really a shame to be without those things. And But it's also true that had we been without those things, we would have found other great things to study. So that was really the the puzzle, and it was a way of questioning, again, a kind of utilitarian perspective that looks at everything from the idea of does it add to the goodness of people's lives? If, if we were without it, would, would life be worse? Now, there, there's been quite a bit of publicity around morality. Do you think that there's any such thing as a morally perfect person? <laughs> there, there are two questions one could ask. One is, are there actually morally perfect people in the world? And the second question is, what is it to what would it be like to be a morally perfect person? Starting with that second question, when I think about what it would be to be a morally perfect person, my own view is I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want my children to be that kind of person. I don't my friends for the most part are not that kind of person and I'm glad about that. So so there's one question can we achieve moral perfection? And there's another question, ought we to achieve moral perfection? And though I think, actually, if you, if you want to achieve moral perfection and you can, that's great. I'm not against it. I also don't think those are the people that I'm going to choose to have over for dinner. <laughs> so so that, that, that's another angle, uh, another way into the subject of moral and non-moral values remembering that there are non-moral values, there is a question, if you're a morally perfect person, is there room for those non-moral values in your life? And it's difficult to find that room. Okay. Could you explain about the difference between meaning in life and meanings of lives? Well, I think there's a difference between the philosophical question that is... Does life have a meaning? What, or maybe the uh, the question, what is the meaning of life? Which assumes that there's a positive answer to that. Of course, the answer could be there is no meaning to life. That's a meaning of life question. At least the way I hear that question, what it means is, is there a point to human existence? Are we put here on the world? Is there something? Is there a purpose for for our being here? What is it? So that's one question. In different contexts, people talk about whether their lives are meaningful. They might say, oh, my life lacks meaning, where what they have in mind is that they want to do something different with their lives to give it meaning. And I think those are different, those are raising different questions. Um, when I say my life la- lacks meaning, I don't mean it lacks the meaning of life or that. So the question, what's the meaning of life? Does life have a meaning? Is a question that's usually meant to apply not to one life versus another, but to all of human life. Are we here for a reason? Is there a, a purpose to our existence? And either we all have it or nobody has it. But when we talk about my life lacks meaning or his life is so meaningful, or you know, we're not talking about an all or nothing question. We're talking about something 
different, something that makes one's life worth living, not because there is a purpose to human existence, but because among the opportunities humans have or ways humans can lead their lives, some of them seem like more worthwhile ways to spend one's time, make use of one's, one's talents or opportunities than others. And so living a meaningful life is something, in my mind, one can, one can and uh, I think should aspire to do, even if the question, is there a meaning to life as such, doesn't have a positive answer. So I don't know if there's a meaning to life as such, but I do think it's much more meaningful to spend one's time feeding the poor or fighting injustice than to play video games all day. Yeah, that's right. I suppose there's got to be a bit of a balance too. Uh, between there? what? Video games, video and, games and, and saving, and saving the world. life. Yeah, yeah, well, for me there's a bit of a balance, right? <laughs> the morally perfect person doesn't have any desire to play video games. <laughs> Now, happiness and meaning are two aspects of the good life. Sometimes, do you think people can have one thought too many? One thought too many about, well, about happiness or meaning? Perhaps. The, the phrase one thought too many is a, is a phrase often associated with the philosopher Bernard Williams, who has this wonderful example of, it's an example he takes from someone else who, who was doing moral theory, and the it, the case was one of two people drowning. You're in the lifeboat, and what there are two people drowning on uh, two sides of the boat. Uh, one of them is your wife, and there was a philosopher, not Bernard Williams, who said you can save your wife in that case. You don't have to flip a coin, right? Because and gave some justification for that. It was a the accident itself was a sufficient randomizing event, according to this other person, to make it permissible to save your wife. Williams's response was that offering that justification of sufficient randomizing event was one thought too many. He went on to say, this is almost an exact quote, it might have been hoped by some, for instance, by his wife, that his motivating thought fully spelled out was it's his wife and not it's my wife and in situations of this kind it is permissible to save one's wife. It's a great passage I think and at least I responded to it and I think most most people though not everyone responded to it with yes there's right that's how creepy to think of someone in such a moment thinking oh I want to save my wife but is it morally permissible. So I, I did. I was trying to think about how to understand the implications of the, of that of that fact that that is one thought too many. It's, it's that sometimes morality is thinking about whether something is morally permissible is one thought too many in the ideal, best, right, good way to respond to situations. So, what is the relationship between love and knowledge? A controversial question. I think. I think love should encourage and motivate attention to, in such a way that is going to give you maximum knowledge of, a, of the object of love. So that's, that's a response to a, a very common view in our society that love is blind, 
uh, where that's understood not as a criticism, but as maybe the right way to love is to not see faults in the beloved, but to, you know, that if you really love someone, they'll, everything about them will seem wonderful. And that if you see faults about them, that's a sign that you're not really loving them as fully. As I say, I think that's a common view in society and that there's a way in which, so to take one kind of low-key example, your, your child comes to you with their finger painting or something and says, yeah, mommy, mommy, you know, is it, isn't this great? And according to this love is blind image, the good mother would not only say, yes, that's great, but would think it was great, right? And someone who's, who looks at it and says, ah, <laughs> you've got a long way to go, that is not, a, that's a sign that the person doesn't, isn't loving in the most full and appropriate way. But I, I actually don't agree with that. I think, I mean, it's one thing to be, when we're talking about a young child and, and a parent or maybe a young child and any loving adult. But but I think in relationships, especially of adults, the best kind of love is a love that's fully attentive and, and that loves someone not by not noticing the person's faults, but does notice the person's faults, and that doesn't compromise the love. You don't love the person only for the good things. You love the person, you recognize the person as lovable, but you can also recognize those faults and, and to be loved that way, to be loved by s- someone and feel that having faults doesn't, um, you're not in danger of losing their love because you have faults. It seems to me the best kind of love to, ha- to have. It's, it's interesting how you say faults. I mean, uh, I suppose how would you define faults? Because I'm, I'm a bit of a bit of a collector of antique furniture, and yes. you know I, I've probably got too much in the house, especially ah. when the hallway isn't clear. And I mean, <laughs> people might look at me and think, "Oh, that's a bit of a fault." She's a collector, and mm. you know, sort of almost gets a bit obsessive with collecting old furniture. But I don't see that as a fault myself. So <laughs> yes, well, ah. Uh, that's a further question, and it may be that the so Iris Murdoch has a has this concept of loving attention, uh, of looking at someone lovingly, and it may well be that what that when you look at someone lovingly, you're more likely to see qualities that some people might see as faults, in a way that doesn't see them as faults. So you, you might see them as ex as charming eccentricities, or even just as as fine, as good, as interesting. And so, yes, there is that question, and there is... But then there are some cases where they are... I mean, people have faults, after all. Maybe collecting antique furniture or collecting a lot of antique furniture isn't such a fault. But, you know, I, we could take some pretty serious faults. You, you know, someone who's a, a snob or... A sexist, uh, that would be a, a good kind of case. I, you think of my grandparents, perhaps, uh, who who were sexists. I mean, almost all the people of their generation were sexists. Uh, and those are f- faults. They're not just charming eccentricities. But you can love someone without... And, and I'm, it's not like I love them any less because of that than I, you just have to love them with an understanding and appreciation of the fact that imperfections and faults are part of all of us and 
yeah, you don't have to be perfect to be lovable. <laughs> Look, is love really all that important? The short answer is yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I've tried sometimes to th- think what what universals are there? Are there any universals about what's important in life or what the good life is is like or what ingredients there are to the good life? Do I are there any universals that I believe in? Because in general, I I tend to think. We have overly narrow views about that our values are the right values or are the are universal values. One's habits, one just takes for granted, are shared by everyone until you start seeing people who don't have them. And, of course, there are people who live lives without love. But I, I, if there's anything that's universal about what makes a life more rewarding, it seems to me plausible that it's having love in one's life. Now, I suppose that everyone has their own personal concept of duty. Well, I, I'm not sure that everyone has a concept of duty at all, actually. Uh, and I don't even mean that in a bad sense. I mean, I think there's at least arguments that the ancient Greeks didn't think in terms of duty, that duty is a, a, a modern notion. But there are also so many different ways of using the word. So there are the duties of an officer, a role. Maybe everyone has a sense that that, the, the duties of a parent, the duties of a teacher, the duties of president or what. But then there's a, there's a sense that is probably the most common in, in moral philosophy of moral duty as a, you know, universal obligations that people have. I'm not, I mean, there might, everyone probably has their own personal idea of what that counts as, but Usually, when you call it a duty, you, even though you have your personal idea, it's an idea that you mean to apply to everyone. So I think, um, at least, again, in philosophy, I think that's the more common way to think about duty. Right. And also, there's moral obligations and social commands as well. Well, yes, there are. So um, there's a question of what the relation is between moral obligations and social commands. Clearly, there are social commands that are not moral obligations because society, moralities tends, are often flawed. So there are racist societies and sexist societies and societies that don't, don't appreciate animal, animal welfare. And so there could be a social command to behave in a certain way that's actually from the point of view of moral obligation – simply wrong. I mean, the most obvious, if trite example would be Nazi, you know, in Nazi Germany, the command to report Jews who are hiding in the attic so that they can be removed and exterminated, right? The the social command, or at least in a sense, there was a social command to report the Jews to the authorities, but that was clearly not a moral obligation. Presumably the moral obligation was to do the opposite. But there is a difficult question about things going in the other direction. That is, are there moral obligations that don't have a connection to social commands? I think many people, probably the standard view in 
contemporary philosophy is, of course there are, but I am actually not so sure of that. I mean, I think the idea of obligation, at least the way I understand the idea of obligation, to say that a person has an obligation implies that a certain amount of pressure is a, can appropriately be put on them to do it and that a certain kind of blame is appropriate if they don't do it. So if you have an obligation to do something and you don't do it, I, you deserve blame. But I, I think if there is no social command to do something, I mean, it doesn't have to be a very obvious command. It doesn't have to be an explicit command. If there's no social context that says these are the right ways to behave, if you don't behave that way, I'm not really sure that it is fair or appropriate to blame the person. I mean, they don't even, how do they know that they're supposed to behave that way if it's not something that society in some form has the, the seed, you know, has sown the seeds for recognizing. So I think our, our moral obligations change and evolve as society's appreciation of what's important and what's acceptable evolve. Right, so it's a very interesting topic. Now, do you have any future study plans? My current biggest project is about about the concept of responsibility and its just, its connection to the concept of what it is to be a human self. I'm interested again connecting a little bit to the moral and non-moral value topic. I think philosophers think that. To be a self, well, they think of responsibility as identical to moral responsibility. That is to be subject to, to be responsible for being morally good and not being morally bad. And when they think of what it is to be a responsible agent, they think about the qualities that are necessary in order for you to be subject to moral blame and praise. But I think there are all kinds of things that intuitively we regard people as responsible for, that we think people and only people, humans and only humans, I don't mean this in a biological or species-related sense, but in some kind of ethical sense, that we think people and only people can be responsible for, can deserve blame and credit for, criticism and credit for, that have nothing to do with moral and immoral treatment. So... The paper I'm giving tomorrow is called Aesthetic Responsibility, and it talks about a person's responsibility for creating beautiful art. But you, there's also responsibility for having a good sense of humor. Or That is, we hold people responsible. We see, we see something expressed in their sense of humor or in the artwork they create that also says something about being human and that therefore it's it's just a way of broadening those concepts and taking us away from the overly narrow paradigm of the moral and rational agent. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program. So, well, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you've been listening to Professor Susan Wolfe speaking about morality, meaning and love. You're listening to Radical Philosophy at 8.55 a.m., this is Susan Wolfe from the University of North Carolina. And that's just about all we have time for today. So thank you very much for your company. 